Psalm 19. When asking people what they're reading in their Bible, I often hear the response, I'm reading through the Psalms. Which, by the way, is a good response. That's a good answer. But it's a good answer for many reasons. The Psalms are memorable and significant. We can find them relatable uh, to even our own lives. They, The Psalms reveal how the people of God have tried to walk with God through various life issues. And we notice as we study them that they express a wide range of emotion from joy to sorrow, from courage to fear, to feeling abandoned to feeling loved, and on and on it goes. And as we read it, as we read through them and we realize that we face some of these aspects of life too, it becomes evident to us that we are dependent upon God and his word to know how to navigate through those various seasons of life. Psalms help us remember that we're not alone in our experience of striving to live for God in a fallen world. Let's face it, we do often think that we are alone. We feed ourselves the lies that no one, no one struggles like I do. No one's going through the situation like I am. No one can relate. But the truth is, those are just lies. The Psalms provide comfort for us and remind us that God gives us what we need to walk in a way that's pleasing to Him. That's what we read in Second Peter 1. He's given us His very great and precious promises so that we would live in a way that's obedient to Him. So we would live in a way that worships Him. Yet, if we're going to live in that way, we need to know God and we need to know what He said about everything. So today, I'm excited to announce that we're going to be getting a new series starting today called Psalms for Life. We're going to be spending a few months looking at various psalms and their different expressions of what it looks like to live a life walking with God. And I believe it's appropriate if we're going to start looking through the psalms and considering our life in relation to them to begin with Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is a beautiful expression of the greatness of God's revelation and how it impacts us. So if we're going to try to figure out how to walk with God, we need to know how God has revealed himself. And Psalm 19 is all about that. Some of you might be familiar with C.S. Lewis. He has written actually regarding Psalm 19 saying, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. That's a pretty lofty statement. But he's right. I believe he's right. It declares such amazing things about God and the word he's given us. As we read through Psalm 19, we see that the point is God has revealed himself so that we would live for him. God has revealed himself so that we would live for him. And we're meant to know God from the Garden of Eden. Mankind was designed, was created to know God. 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 
And we're supposed to take that knowledge about God and bring forth a response. The knowledge of God is to bring forth some type of response from us. And so we're going to see that progression in this chapter. And you could break up Psalm 19 into three divisions. First is verses 1 through 6, where we see the proclamation of God's creation. Verses 7 through 12 will tell us the perfection of God's word and verses 12 through, or sorry, 7 through 11 and verses 12 through 14 is the petition of God's people. So let's begin with our first six verses here on the proclamation of God's creation. Read with me along in Psalm 19. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. His voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the world, through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Well, it's always good when we begin to study a passage to consider what the context is for that. And the extent of our context is in what we call the superscription, which is that little beginning that says, to the choir master of Psalm of David. So that's our background. We know that this was a song written by King David. But the context, the historical setting is not the focus of this psalm. This song is focused on the subject of God's revelation. And we see it begin, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Verse 1 tells us what God's creation proclaims. We call this general revelation. Truths that are revealed about God through his creation. What can be known, what can be generally known about God through all he has made and how he provides for it. And the psalmist targets in on the heavens, the sky, everything up from the sun to the moon to space and the stars. That's his focus. And all of space and everything in it are declaring something to you. They are telling us something, and it is an ongoing telling us something. They're constantly communicating, and it's it's been happening since the beginning of creation, since God spoke forth and the heavens were created and the sun and the moon was created, the sky was created. Ever since then, the creation is singing a song about God. They're proclaiming something. And so if you're like me, you wonder, okay, well, what are they proclaiming? Well, the psalmist gives us the answer. They are proclaiming to you right now at this moment the glory of God. The glory of God, the majesty of our God, the mighty power of our creator, the existence of God, that he is there and the significance of him. That he is not just someone we brush aside. In fact, the term glory carries the idea of weightiness to it. Weightiness. So God's works are great and they reveal certain facts about him. Their declaration is that there's a creator God who is mighty, he is powerful, and he is wise. 
And some have even designated this portion of Scripture to be called the hymn of creation. The hymn of creation, praising God for His works. Now, look at the text with me. Notice here, it says the heavens are declaring the glory of God. Okay, you think, okay, that's a typical name for God. You know, we see it so much, we probably don't even think about it. But the name here being used for God is El. And when the title or the name El is used, it refers to the eternal one with supreme power. It's, it's highlighting that aspect about God that he is eternal and he is all powerful. It's no wonder that, and it's very interesting, when you look at Genesis chapter 1, you see a connection there where the name used for God is Elohim, which is El, only plural, which is a whole other study in itself, and it's fascinating and I encourage it. But Genesis 1 highlights what about God? His magnificent power, his supernatural creation. So God is so powerful that he can speak forth and the universe is created. And so it would make sense as the psalmist is reflecting, reflecting on that universe that's created, he's highlighting for us the majesty of the all-powerful one. The one who is described as making all things. The sky proclaims his handiwork. His handiwork. The universe belongs to God. Doesn't belong to us, belongs to God. He is the supreme and all powerful creator who made everything in six literal consecutive 24 hour days. There's no reason to doubt that. He's the all powerful one. He can do that. And if we expect him to recreate everything at the end of time, why couldn't he have done it at the beginning? Well, he did do it at the beginning. He spoke all things into existence, meaning also he is the rightful owner of all things. The universe belongs to him and he is the one with all the authority. That's why we read in the Psalms elsewhere that our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He has the right to do all as he pleases. When you consider the authority and power of God as our creator, and then you think about the theory, yes, the theory, not the doctrine of evolution, the theory of evolution, it really shows that the theory of evolution is cosmic plagiarism. It's cosmic plagiarism. It's theft at its highest. It takes God's works and ascribes it to itself, as though evolution, nature, is the creator. But the creation is like a painting where the author signs his name at the bottom. And evolution tries to take God's, the painting of God's hands and sign its own name at the bottom. And no matter how much whiteout it tries to use and those who people who proclaim it try to use, you cannot erase or cover up the evidence that God is the creator. The universe is God's masterpiece, and it points to him. Not to us. But we see that this proclamation, verse 2, that day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There's an ongoing aspect of this general revelation. Day to day, night to night. Day to day, night to night. Day, night. Day, night. I think you got the point. 
it keeps going. It's constant. It's consistent. And it pours out this speech. The idea behind this word pours out is the concept of like a bubbling spring, a bubbling spring that is always bringing forth more water and it never runs dry. This revealing of a general understanding that there is a God and He is powerful and He's the Creator, it is always bubbling up and being made known to us. Some of you probably have been on a beach before and you see one of those planes fly across just off the water and you see them dragging one of those really long banners and as you slowly take your time to read it, it's telling you something. Well, creation is when you look up and you see it, it's like one of those banners that is constantly streaming for you. There is a God. He is all-powerful. He is your creator. And I would add to that, worship Him. So the day reveals God's, the knowledge of God. Nighttime does as well. You think about, in the daytime, there's not much you can see beyond our sky. And if you live out here, you just see clouds. That's about it. But what happens when the night comes and the sky is clear? It's like a beautiful painting. The sky is just sprinkled with stars. You know, imagine David, the writer of this psalm, you know, he he was a shepherd, so for a large portion of his life he would sit out in the fields with his sheep daytime and then nighttime sitting out there before the invention of the light bulb can you imagine what he would have seen it would have been amazing maybe more than we've ever seen at least with our naked eye you know it's estimated that on a clear night without the moon shining in an area with no light pollution you can see somewhere between 2500 and 5000 stars just with the naked eye Now we know when you add any magnification to that, especially those big old telescopes, that jumps to millions upon millions of stars. And God made each one of them and he put each one of them exactly where he wanted them and he made them the size he wanted them and to function how he wanted them. And we just get to sit back and enjoy and just say, wow, God, you are amazing. In fact, verses 3 and 4 tell us that this ongoing declaration to us is a universal declaration that everyone has witnessed it. Yet, it is a unique declaration because it says there's no speech. You're like, wait a second, hang on. You just said the heavens are declaring something and they're pouring out speech, but now it says there's no speech. Nor are there words. The voice is not heard. Well, it's a unique declaration. It's not an audible declaration that we hear. And I'm sorry, all my Marvel fans, the moon does not speak to you. But it's a silent revelation. A wordless speech. A visual testimony. We see it with our eyes. Everyone can see it, whether no matter what language, nation, ethnicity, age, all see this proclamation. None can claim to have missed it. 
creation. It appeals to our senses through a wordless communication. Our eyes gaze upon the beauty and the seemingly infinite number of stars. Uh, We witness the sun rising and then setting with just a radiant amount of colors, and it's just beautiful. We feel the warmth of the sun, light hitting us, and it's all to point us to God. John Calvin wrote on this passage, When a man, from beholding and contemplating the heavens, has been brought to acknowledge God, he will learn also to reflect upon and to admire his wisdom and power as displayed on the face of the earth. Not only in general, but even but even in the minutest plants. So we look up and we see, well, this is amazing. Look what God had created. And we start thinking, well, look, the mountain's out today. Wow, that's amazing too. Look how big that is. And then you look at all the trees. And even think about the details of the plants and the insects and how everything works. And our minds are just captivated to praise God for all that he's created. All things exist for the purpose of proclaiming the glory of our mighty creator. And in fact, the psalmist shifts here at the end of verse 4 to highlight one area in particular. And that's the sun. The sun testifies about God. It's something that is an unavoidable presence. It impacts our daily lives. It impacts our calendars. It impacts the production of our food, everything. And imagine writing from David's perspective looking up, as well as would be the same as ours, the sun is significant. We see it every day, rise, or at least we see the effects of it. Clouds, you know, sometimes don't help. But in the ancient times, many civilizations actually worshipped the sun. And you see the psalmist here jabbing a little bit, at, or a lot of bit, I should say, that no, 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 we don't worship the sun. The sun is just a part of God's creation in the heavens. The sun points to God. The sun testifies that God exists, that God put the sun there. And he compares that sun to two things, a bridegroom and a strong man running. The idea here with the bridegroom is the sun coming up is like it's leaving its tent. It's left its tent and now there it is in the morning to go throughout the whole day. Like a bridegroom, when he's ready to go and take his bride, he would leave his chambers, leave his house, leave his tent. And there was a sense of excitement. The bridegroom is ready to go get his bride. It wasn't a sense of, you know, the bridegroom stepping out. like, oh man, okay, I guess I'll go get her. It's excitement, joy. He's set on a course with a mission. Thus the sun is a visual evidence. God has put it there to remind us to rejoice in the Lord. It is a new day. Rejoice in Him. But He also compares it to a strong man running. A strong man rejoicing in his race or his course. This carries the idea of representing the power of the sun. A strong man. Powerful man. As it it moves from the start, he moves from the start to the end of a race. So the sun begins rising in the east, runs his race and sets in the west. There is a cycle, a circuit that God, what God has established will happen. And it takes the power of God to set it on that circuit and to sustain it on that circuit. 
The Son reveals God's power, His wisdom, and His glory every time it is present. In fact, talking about the universal impact of this revelation, we see that nothing is hidden from its heat. Nothing. No one can escape it. Even though it's wordless, the effects are clear. Everyone is given this general but important revelation. And I think that brings us to a couple responses. The first is we ought to recognize and believe in this almighty creator God. There's no excuse for you not to. We also, it reminds us to respond with humility. It humbles us. You study the vastness of space and all that God has created, the size of the stars. And we're just tiny. We're just teeny little specks. We're not as grand and mighty as powerful. We're not as big. We're not God. We didn't make it all. Who are we? In the vastness of the universe, you would think we're seemingly insignificant. Which is what evolution the consequences of that wants to teach you. But it leads us to praise God because though we are seemingly insignificant, we learn that we're made in the image of God and God has given thought to us. So much so that he sent his son to die for us that we would be reconciled to God and enjoy a relationship with him, enjoy eternity with our creator. That there's no longer enmity between us and God because of our sin. But now there is reconciliation. So it leads us to praise God. Praise Him, God. Only God can make such wonderful things. Praise Him for it. I think another response is it reminds us to worship God alone. We worship God alone. Now, fallen mankind is prone to drift towards deifying nature. Making nature God. And we hear this more often than we realize it. And we might adapt this statement more than we realize. But you hear the phrase, Mother Nature. Oh, she's just cranky today. Mother Nature is having a bad day. Mother Nature did this. Mother Nature did that. It's just pantheism. Pantheism. Saying that the universe itself is God. But nature has been designed to not point to itself, but but to point to its creator. Nature didn't put itself at, put itself there. God put it there. God made it. So we don't worship creation. We worship the creator. But that's the problem with fallen man: is we tend to worship the creation. And general revelation about God is insufficient to bring us into a saving relationship with him. We need more information. It doesn't give us what we need to know to be saved. You can't just look up at the stars and and all of a sudden realize, hey, those spell Jesus Christ who died on the cross. and You, You can't figure that out just by looking at creation. You need more. It's not enough to save, but... The Bible tells us it is enough to condemn. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writes about the ungodliness of mankind and the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against it, against men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
And in that, we think that Paul might have had Psalm 19 in the back of his mind when he wrote in Romans 1, 19 and 20, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Well, how? He says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. The things that have been made are a clear sign that there is a creator. And we are accountable to him. There's no excuse to reject the basic knowledge that there is a God. In fact, the psalmist says in Psalm 14.1 that the fool says in their heart, there is no God. And the depravity of evolution and atheism is that it attempts to deny even the most basic revelation about God, that he exists. And fallen man has devoted himself, we're naturally from birth, we devote ourselves and Unregenerate man devotes themselves to finding anything to replace or reject God whom they know exists. He's given testimony to himself and all that's been made. And they do that, why? So that they don't have to be accountable to him. I don't have to answer for my sin. To which means that the denial of God isn't so much a factual issue as it is a moral and spiritual issue. Mankind is blinded by the sin he loves. And we need rescued from that. And we know that the creation points to the creator, but we need to know where that rescue comes from. And thankfully, the psalmist doesn't end here. He tells us of this perfect revelation that is sufficient to tell us where our redemption comes. And that's verses 7 through 11. We see the perfection of God's word. He goes on to say in verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So we shift here from talking about God's world to God's word. We call this word of God special revelation. We went from general revelation now to special revelation. This word of God that is perfect The beginning of verse 7 there, that line, the law of the Lord is perfect, is the focus of this whole section. We're talking about the law of the Lord, this special revelation. Now, special revelation is God's communication about himself and his will. This revealed truth is a self-disclosure from God through which a greater and more clear understanding is given. Specifically, we see this in the revelation that teaches us about redemption through Jesus Christ. In 2 Timothy 3, verses 15 and 17, Paul writes to Timothy, saying, The sacred writings, which are the scriptures, the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So the special revelation 
these sacred writings teach us about salvation in Jesus Christ. And they are sufficient that we would be complete in every area of life, trained in righteousness for every area of life. The Bible is God's own words to us where he has revealed himself much more clearly, much more, more thoroughly. When we see the scriptures, we read that this God isn't just the creator who is omnipotent, all-powerful. He is also loving and merciful and gracious and just. And he will return. And he has a plan for all of time. We learn much more. And so, while creation speaks about God, the Bible speaking is God speaking. Notice, look at verse 7. The law of God? No. It's the law of the Lord. Your Bible probably has a capital L-O-R-D. When that's used, it's referring to the covenantal name of God, Yahweh. So he went from talking about the glory of God, the all-powerful supreme one. Now he's giving emphasis to this faithful and loving God who gives people his word so they know him personally. So he's no longer some distant creator. But he is a near God, a God who saves his people, is with his people. So everything described about God's word here, we see it is attached with the phrase of the Lord, indicating that God's word, the Bible, is from God. It is an act of his grace to give it to us. We didn't earn it or deserve it or go find it ourselves. And it is describing just this comprehensive sufficiency of the scriptures. Let's, let's work through these phrases here, these lines. The first one, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The term law here doesn't so much mean legal codes. This is referring to instruction for right living. The law is instruction for right living. The scripture is revealing of God's instructions and all that we need to know for life and godliness. And the teachings of God's word are perfect. That's what it says right there. They're perfect. Okay, what does perfect mean? Well, this term means they are complete. They are whole. They're not lacking in anything. Which, if even the church would just grasp onto that and realize that, it would help so much. The the scriptures are sufficient for life and godliness. And the effects of it are clear. It is the revival of the soul. The restoring of the soul. That means scripture gives us everything we need to know to come to saving faith in Christ and be converted, be transformed. But it doesn't just leave us there. Yes, we learn about this Jesus who came and died for us, who are we're sinners from birth and need to be saved from our sins. Otherwise, we stand facing the wrath of God in eternity. But Christ took that wrath upon himself on the cross so that if we repent and trust in him, we will be saved. But remember, he didn't stay dead. He rose again from the dead. So not only are we forgiven of our sins, but we're given life and a hope that will be with him forever. So the scriptures are clear, very clear about revealing that way of life is only through Jesus Christ. But they are also complete 
and not lacking so that we know how to continually walk with Christ. That our soul is being transformed to show we know this Lord. First Peter one twenty three says you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. You see, the next line says the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Testimony here means all that God gives witness to. The Bible is God's statement about everything that it mentions. And it is sure, meaning that it is trustworthy. It's faithful. It's accurate and reliable. So what the Lord of creation says can be trusted. And what does that accomplish? Well, it makes wise the simple. It teaches us about God himself. It teaches us about life. It teaches us about redemption. It makes us it makes known to us the path of life, both how to get onto the path and then how to walk on that path. Psalm 119, 130 says, The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Now, simple doesn't just mean a lack of understanding, a lack of knowledge. That's definitely included in there, but it carries along with it the idea of someone who is susceptible to deception. Someone susceptible to deception. And so the scriptures help protect us from deception. The Holy Spirit uses it to grow us in wisdom so we know how to live a godly life and we are empowered to do so. Imagine as you're driving down the road, you see signs that point, give you direction or warn you. High water, danger, high water. Okay, I know, don't go that way or it could go very bad, poorly for me. Scripture guides us. We see also the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. These are the, the principles and guidelines that we should follow. They're the directions for how we're to live as God's people. And they're right. The word means that they are being straight. The guidelines of the Lord's are right, and that by them we live on the straight and narrow path. And the Lord's word, it doesn't lead us astray. It's not out to try to trick us. Listen, God isn't confused about how life ought to be and how we to go about living for his glory. He's not out to confuse or trick us. Unlike, I remember the when GPS and cars started getting big, you'd put your address in there, and you're trying to go to the mall, and you'd end up in a cornfield. Okay? God's not confused. His word tells us this is the way we ought to go if we're going to please him. And these principles that for life that God sets down, what do they do? They, they rejoice the heart. Now, let's be honest. Many of us, when we think of rules and guidelines, don't equate that with joy. Okay, how many, how many of you kids like it that, you know, you want to go out and play outside of the boundaries of your yard, but mom and dad say, no, you got to stay within the fence line. Oh, great. Your rules are impressing upon my fun. That's how we tend to think of rules and guidelines. But God's guidelines bring joy to the heart because they're right. They're how life ought to be. 
So if you desire joy, then know that it's only going to be found in the Lord and in His way as revealed through the Scriptures. Ask yourself, do you find joy in knowing God and obeying God? Not just one or the other, both. We see the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The Lord has revealed His commands, which here are divine orders, directions. And because they are from the Lord, the creator, the master of the universe, they are to be followed. They're not optional. We don't get to open the Bible and God says, you know, okay, be kind to one another. I'm going to hard pass on that one today, God. Maybe tomorrow. We'll see. They're not optional. Psalm 12, 6 says, the, Lord's of, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. There's no deception in God's word, no errors in God's word. The scriptures reveal life as it really is. God's decrees of how we're to live are not hidden. The gospel is not hidden. It's not muddy. The Bible lays out clearly how we are to obey God. And this clarity enlightens our eyes. Helps us see clearly. One commentator said on this, the scriptures, they remove a thousand misconceptions, prejudices, and follies, which like fog and darkness obscure our perceptions. It shows us the real nature of things. The Bible shows us the real natures of things. Shows us what is right, what is wrong, how we're to live. Verse 9 tells us that the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Now, this is interesting. The the psalmist shifts here slightly, almost like he's beginning to talk about the response that comes from knowing God's word. But he shifts using this term fear of the Lord to describe our attitude towards God in his word. It's intended to capture the idea of the attitude scripture conveys we should have. This is how we should Think of God. The attitude we should have towards Him and His Word is the fear of the Lord. It is, as one writer said, the revealed way by which one properly respects God is to fear Him. We should have awe before God. I mean, look at verses 1 through 6. He made the heavens. Yes, we should respect and have awe for God. We should value and obey His Word. We should respect it because it's The word has proceeded from the mouth of the universe's ruler. And the fear of the Lord is clean. His word, the fear of his word is clean, meaning it keeps us walking in purity. It produces a life that's not hypocritical. He says, then the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. God's judicial decisions and judgments are righteous, are true, What God has declared is final and true. His decisions are right and how things ought to be. His word trumps all other words. Psalm 119, 160 says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. The Bible is true. It produces a life reflecting righteousness. And only in the scriptures do we find the source of righteousness. And that source is Jesus Christ alone. And as we trust in Christ, we receive his righteousness. 
as we're reconciled to God, justified before God. And then the Bible teaches us how to live in light of having the righteousness of Christ. Now let's think for a moment. What else can be described as so perfect and so powerful? I mean, we read God's word is described as perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true, and righteous. The effects of it, it revives the soul, it makes wise the simple, it rejoices the heart, it enlightens the eyes. What else in life can produce such effects as that? What else is as powerful and perfect as God's word? Nothing. Nothing is. If you could walk away, if I could get you to walk away with one thing today, it's that you would see how perfect and powerful this is, how sufficient this is, how precious this is, how gracious of God it is to give us this, and, and that we would treasure it more, and we would give our lives to study it more. This is God's special revelation where he has revealed himself to us. It's necessary and sufficient. If we're going to live in a manner pleasing to God and avoiding sin and error, then we need to know it. But not just know it, as in I've built up all these facts I know about God in the Bible. But I know it in a way that it's changing my life. I'm submitting to it. And the scriptures are powerful to produce the effects God intends. The scriptures are the hammer of God that breaks the hard heart. The the Holy Spirit uses it to sanctify us. The, The scriptures are the Spirit's scalpel to cut away sin. They're His bandage to bind up the wounded heart. They're His sword to cut through the lies of the evil one. And they are our food by which we grow. And it's all by God's grace that we have this special revelation, and it is precious. In fact, David tells us next how valuable and precious it is when he says, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. David's own reaction to the perfection of God's word was to proclaim the precious nature of it. It's more valuable than gold and riches. Gold was the most valuable resource in the ancient Near East. Let me give you an illustration of kind of what David's putting before us here. You know, imagine I sit you down and I put in front of you a hundred billion dollars and a Bible. And I was to ask you, okay, you choose which is better and more profitable for you. Now I know your answer. You're like, I got two hands. I'll grab both. Okay. (laughs) That's not the point. David is saying the Bible is far better And it is the obvious choice because it is the most valuable thing on the earth. There's nothing nothing more profitable for us, more desirable than the Bible. And if you're like me, you ask why. How is that possible? Well, that's because the Bible is the word of God and it is sufficient to make one wise unto eternal salvation and that is eternally profitable. Oh, it's not just profitable, it's enjoyable. 
It's sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb. It's the sweetest thing. It's the best thing. It's, it's better than your favorite dessert. It's better, I know, this is crazy, but the little Reese Easter egg cups, you know, those, those are just wonderful. But it's better and sweeter than that, more desirable than that. It's not a burden. But honestly, don't we come to the Bible as if it's a burden? Okay, quick, get my, you know, I'll read the chapter and I can check it off for the day. Or, man, that was hard. I don't, I don't know what he meant. Moving on, I'll read something else. What's on YouTube? We come to it like it's a burden. And yes, we have to work and study. But it's good for our soul. It's food for our soul. It's the best thing we'll ever read. It, listen, it warns us of dangers. The dangers of the foolishness of sin and its consequences. Yet it also guides us on the path of life. And in keeping God's words, there is great reward. Not just reward of eternal life, though, as if that was not enough. That is enough. But keeping God's word brings assurance in this life and joy that my lifestyle reflects one who does know Christ. The perfection of God's word is sufficient and powerful and it leads us to respond. Just like we see the last section here, it led David to respond in verses 12 through 14. We see the petition of God's people. David writes, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This, you could say this last section here, as David is led to respond, is the law of the Lord doing exactly what we read in Hebrews 4.12, where it says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word cuts. It does. It cut David. As he reflects on the perfection of God's word, he realizes that he is imperfect. As we study the word of God and our own eyes are enlightened to God's righteousness, we will see areas where we lack living in a righteous manner. Sin runs deep within mankind. We're born sinful. Sin hides in every area of our lives and we sin more than we realize. Sometimes we don't realize how much we actually sin and we hear it in statements like, you know, I used to struggle with pride, but I, I, I got over that, you know. Not realizing how prideful that statement is. Or we say things that cause conflict with one another, not even realizing it. And then we get a phone call later. Hey, you know, did you, did you mean to say it that way? Or, hey, I've noticed this in your life. Man, it, that's not good. That, that's not obeying God. Totally oblivious to us. And so like David, we need the Lord. Oh God, please keep me from these hidden faults. Please forgive me. There's more sin there than I can imagine. And praise God that Jesus' work on the cross is sufficient for all that. So David petitions, forgive me, pardon me of these sins. But not only that, he also prays that God would keep him back from willful, arrogant sins. Things he just happily dives right into. He calls them presumptuous sins. And he cries out, Lord, 
Don't let those transgressions exist and don't let them control me if they do. Beloved, sin is a cruel master. It's sneaky. It grows when fed. And it destroys. It always destroys. It takes you further than you ever wanted to go. It shows itself or impacts every other area. Areas that might not even be connected to the sin. You think, oh, that has nothing to do with it. It impacts every part of your life. It's a cruel master. It brings this destruction. And as much as we might put on a facade for each other, we cannot fool God. We can't fool God. The psalmist knows that living according to the ways of God's perfect word will put him on the path of blamelessness and innocence. Primarily, first, because he knows the Redeemer who's pardoned him, but also because the power and sufficiency of God's word keeps him on the way of righteousness. And listen, there is joy, there is peace, there is assurance when we live obediently to God's word. So let's be like David. Let's obey God's word in every setting of our lives. And when it reveals sin and it cuts us, we confess and we repent. Lastly, verse 14, we see his little concluding prayer. Let the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David is proclaiming his dedication to the Lord, his desire. God, I want to live for you. That the words that both come out of my mouth in proclaiming the glory of God, proclaiming the word of God, That those words, both externally and the words in my mind, that conversation going in my mind, that all of those would be acceptable to you. That all of them would be shaped by your glory, would be shaped by knowing you. That the scripture would be molding me to be more like Christ. And he says, I'm dependent upon you, God, for this. O Lord, O Yahweh. My faithful, covenant-keeping, loving God who is near to me. Keep me. Protect me. Be my rock. Meaning my, my protector. My strength. Be my redeemer. The one who delivers me. The one who rescues me. Who saves me from my sin. Is he your redeemer today? Have you trusted in Christ? And now know deliverance from sin and the wrath of God. Well, he completes here the cycle of this whole psalm. It began with the heavens declare God's glory. To the law speaks perfectly. Now that mankind's redeemed man, that his words would speak in a way that glorifies God. And I think this leads us to three areas of application Three applications. First, we ought to praise God. Praise Him for His works. Praise Him for His word. Declare to Him how great He is. Declare to other people how great He is. Make your speech full of reflections on just the greatness of His word. So praise Him. He is the Creator. Second, seek to know His revelation. Seek to know the word of God. Read it to actually learn it. It doesn't matter how many verses at a time that is. Read it to learn it, to understand it, and to apply it. You can find a friend even to help you with that. So praise him, seek him, 
and confess your sin. Confess your need for God. The truth is we all still struggle with sin. So we ought not be surprised by it. So confess and repent of known sin. Ask the Lord for help. Ask a friend to help you. Pray for the Lord's protection from any sin you might not know. Praise, seek, confess. And as Alistair Begg has put it, this drives us to look up, to see God's glorious power and wisdom, look down to His Word, to know Him and how to live for Him, look inward to see how His Word refines us, but I would add to that, then look outward to see the need of a lost and dying world, the need for you to be the light of Christ. And may God's powerful revelation, may it lead us to respond with hearts and words full of worship. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise for you are the glorious creator, the one who can make things as powerful as the sun as the stars who writes the laws of the universe that governs everything and sustains everything. We praise you for you are a mighty God and we praise you for even making us, making us in your image, sustaining our lives, sustaining our hearts at this very moment, giving us the ability to think. And so I pray that we would take that and we would think upon your word that we would see its beauty, its sufficiency, its perfection, see that it's necessary and that we would walk away desiring to to know it better. But not just to know it, to know it, but to, to know it so that it would change and transform our lives, that we would submit to it. And may everything we do, may we do better bringing you glory and honor. We thank you for Christ who makes it possible that we can be redeemed to you. He is our great redeemer. Conform us more into his image. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.